previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. Martial arts is not a young man's game. You know, martial arts is everybody. Kids, women, children, old, young, everyone can practice. I think that's the beauty of it. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. It's time for episode 89 of the Sports Refuge podcast, the show where guests share their connection with sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. This week's guest, Jenny Hopkinson, has two passions, journalism and ice hockey, both of which she started at a young age. Starting out creating her own newspaper that she would distribute to family members, Hopkinson parlayed that into a decade-long career in print journalism that included nearly five years at the Politico before ultimately stepping away from journalism a few years ago. Jenny's on-ice exploits alternated over several periods of her life, including during her youth, her college days at the University of Maryland, and ultimately to the present as a member of the Washington Wolves ice hockey team. In this episode, Hopkinson shares with me her path into journalism, what led to her departure from the medium, and what it's like now being a recovering journalist. Jenny will also discuss her hockey influences, how she's been able to establish lasting relationships through playing the game, in addition to also giving her take on what makes the Olympics so great. And now, here's my interview with Jenny Hopkinson. Jenny Hopkinson, who I'll let you tell everyone your title, but you've worked pretty much a lot of places in the journalism field. And I think it'd be better off just to let you describe your current position as well as a little bit of your resume. Of course, Jenny, I'm glad to have you here on the podcast. And before we go into that, this is one question I have to ask because I know you're super enthusiastic about being on. What made you decide to be a guest on the show? Oh my gosh, Earl. I First of all, yes, I'm very pumped. Thank you so much for having me. The invitation was to talk about hockey and journalism on like your sports podcast, which is like things that I could talk about and kind of the opportunity to reconnect with you and kind of reminisce about, about our youth. Let's call a spade a spade. Um, and I would be remiss not to mention this. I'm on a sports podcast during the Olympics and I am, I love the Olympics. It's like that combination of like the human spirit and people throwing their bodies in like really impressive ways. I've had it on in the background all week. I'm currently watching the women's marathon swim. If anyone's wondering, I love this event. Uh, they have to swim for a 10 K in open water, which is stupid. That's <laughs> so far. Well, anyway, yes, I'm very excited to be here. And yeah, as, as you pointed out, I've, I've had a, a bunch of different jobs, mostly in journalism and then mostly that built off of that for the record. Earl and I met because we both worked at the Daily Times. Like, I, I was there from 2008 to 2010. So I'm going to do my resume backwards, I think is the moral of the story. So we, I was there with you from 2008 to 2010. I covered Worcester County. It was my first job out of college. I was 21 years old. I lived off of like cheap beer at the beach um, because I couldn't afford anything else. It's like dollar natty beer, dollar natty lighter bust for me. Um, and I covered Worcester County for the Daily Times, and I did that for two years, and that's when I met Earl and like a bunch of other uh, esteemed individuals that have been on this podcast. Um, I'm kind of looking at you, Ben Pinserga. Um, so <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of back among friends, and that was a super cool experience to work on the shore. I'm from Southern Connecticut. I'd never been there before. Make a plug for working for a paper anywhere is that you learn a ton about yourself. You learn basically how to do anything and how to kind of work with people through anything because you just kind of have to. So I left the shore in 2010. I moved to DC. I actually left because I 
I thought no one else at the paper was leaving. And so I felt like I'd just be stuck on the same beat forever. And that turned out not to be true. Shortly after I left, so many other people left. But so I moved to DC and I worked for a pretty small, like very nerdy policy publication covering the EPA, which is a job I got because when I worked in Worcester County, there's this big lawsuit about a poultry farm that was allegedly polluting a river. It wasn't, or well, it, the pollution wasn't coming from what environmentalists said it was. But anyway, it was this big federal case and I was covering it on the shore and this policy publication in DC was also covering it. So the day of my interview, I walked in and said, well, yesterday I wrote about this that's federally related. And the editor who was interviewing me grabbed the clip that I handed him and walked out, didn't say anything. And turns out he handed it to one of their reporters and said, you missed something. Anyway, I got that job. Uh, so I did, did that for three years. And then I went to Politico and the move to Politico was kind of an interesting one. I covered environmental policy in DC for those three years. And then Politico at the time was launching a food and agriculture policy section, which I was weirdly kind of perfect for, right? Like I worked in poultry country. I knew a ton about USDA programs and EPA programs that kind of work with farmers and, you know, kind of those intersections of all of that and kind of what it looks like on the ground to be in a rural community and how these federal programs really affect those. And then I'd spent three years covering environmental policy. So I knew all about pesticides and clean water and all of this stuff. So I was at Politico for almost five years. And while I was there, super cool experiences. I got even got to work in Brussels for a couple of months, also covering ag policy. And then um, I guess in 20, I got to think now. So in 2017, I was kind of looking around wondering what to do next. And I could either go and be a reporter somewhere else on a different beat, or I could stay in ag policy. Um, but I, I didn't feel like I could do both because there's just not that many places covering policy in the way that Politico was. So I decided to take this head filled with policy knowledge and or ag policy knowledge in particular. And I went to, was not there for long, but I went to the Congressional Research Service, which is like the research arm of Congress, basically like a lawmaker can have a question about something. And I was the ag trade expert on staff. So, so yeah, so that was 13 months. Uh, it was, it was a jarringly slow pace compared to being in a newsroom. <laughs> So I learned a lot about myself then and kind of the universe I came from and what other places kind of the pace they worked. And then, so yeah, did that for about a year, then went and kind of stayed in the ag policy lane and decided that let's take a real run at this. And so I went and I was a lobbyist for an organization called the National Farmers Union, which is basically the nation's second largest general farm organization that leads pretty slightly progressive, just left of center. So that was a really great opportunity. I learned a lot more about agriculture on the ground from the folks that I worked for and spent a lot of time kind of out in the fields and really learning a lot, but also like really thinking a lot about Worcester and like that experience that I knew. And then actually earlier this year, I had the opportunity to go to basically a firm. And now I advise companies on ag policy, kind of government relations and communications. So it's kind of a weird, perfect marriage of someone who's like floated around journalism and Capitol Hill and I don't know, had almost every cliched job in Washington. So 
this is where I am. Sometimes I like stop and think about like my career started at a, my first assignment in Worcester was the Ocean City like firefighters parade in the summer of 2008. So like, and I think about that from time to time, like, wait, how did I get here? And I like, I don't know if you have those same moments as like a fellow recovering journalist um, where you're like, huh, didn't expect things to pan out like this. Yeah. It's interesting when you say that, cause I remember before I even got into being a full-time newspaper reporter, I had been doing a number of odd jobs. I was working toll booth in the Ocean City Inlet parking lot. I was doing uh, board hopping for a radio station. Plus, I was stringing for the newspaper. Gwen Garland had got me started in stringing and doing some business stories. So before that, it's like, I can't believe it. Then I became this sole reporter in training position which ended up being really thrown the fire as doing a lot of reporter stuff first day covered a track meet and a, a guy who pretty much died in a house fire so those were two sort yes they were two stories i was still waiting to hear back from fire department I'm like oh time to go to uh snow hill for the uh track meet that was going on at the worcester county rec center but uh yeah it was pretty much yeah i'd look back at it and all the different things that it, done it's like man well there's so many different things when i think you work in a smaller newsroom you you find out one of my co-workers at my job now because it's peppered full of former gannett newspaper writers from new jersey and stuff like that and they basically say sometimes you never notice it but you might be subject to ptsd in the newsroom and you don't really think about it some of the stuff that you see really it may not even hit you and it's like I can say, well, I saw a kid get pulled from the Lycomico River, not to make it sound dark, but you see little things like that. And it's like, well, yeah, that happened. And you just keep moving. Yeah. And no, it's totally true. Like nothing to be in new journalism, right? You Like, first of all, nothing is more interesting than the truth, right? Like we can go dark there, but like, like some of the things that happen, you're just like, this isn't a thing. I mean, even just this summer, right? Like Ocean City's fireworks accidentally set off before fourth of like in the morning of fourth of july it's just so funny and like there's so many little things that you learn from being a community reporter and people's stories that you're just like this is crazy like the truth is so much more you can't make this stuff up truth is so much more interesting than fiction one of my favorite fun facts about worcester county is that when whales wash up uh, on ocean city's shores they are buried in the ocean city airport infield because it's a couple of miles inland and, and like they don't have any space on the peninsula to do it. And that's the only land that like Ocean City has off the island, from what I know or what I remember. And like one day, like does erosion get all the way back to the airport and they find a bunch of whale bones like two miles in- inland from the coast? Like think about that. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, it's so true. The stories, your first day was more stressful than my parade, though. I remember that being real stressful. You know, the stories, the people, like, it's just such a trip. And it's it's why recovering journalists like ourselves sit around and reminisce, I guess. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing about it. It's like, I just think of so many stories. And I feel like I mention this all the time when I do the journalism-centric episodes, that I considered cops and courts and sports very very similar in coverage because what you see in a courtroom is like what you see on a basketball court or sports field no one can spin it whatever way they want you see it with your own eyes what happened and what you see there is the truth or at least what you hear is the word from either i guess in the case of a court case either you hear it from the defendant someone on the stand the prosecutor the defense attorney and things like that the same thing you see the action that you see on the court is no different than what you see in the courtroom. 
That's interesting. I never thought about that. And and this is where I admit I never covered sports, which is wise. I shouldn't have covered sports. But yeah, that's interesting. That's a good take on it. I like that. Yeah. And you don't have to FOIA anything in either case. Oh my gosh, you don't have to FOIA anything. That's That's true. That is... It's funny. I always talk about for the longest time when Sharon always wanted to cover at least one sports profile. And we were trying to get that happen. I know it was like, yeah, this is a perfect idea. You should do a profile on this Shorebirds player because it works. We have team access. It shouldn't be an issue and stuff like that. We just never were able to get it locked down. But, you know, like you'd say when we mentioned Sharon's name, you know, Sharon was, I feel like, I guess, renaissance woman when it comes to some of those things. When it comes to journalism, I feel like she's lived a million lives in journalism and things like that. But, yeah, I see it like this. There are some people that are so used to doing hard news and things like that. That if you throw a feature in their lap and they are lost and and it shouldn't be that way. I feel like just like another sports terminology, I always go with Bill Belichick on the New England Patriots. He has every single member of his coaching staff learn every single position that because, you know, if you're an offensive coordinator, you're going to learn what the quarterback and wide receiver does. But you should also learn uh, special teams. You should learn defense, work with linebackers, things like that, because that way, one, it makes you more multifaceted and it makes you think differently because it's always a counteraction to what the opposing side is going to do. And this way, you're very knowledgeable. And I feel like feature writing can give someone's work a little bit more heart and soul. But that's my opinion. No, but and that was like, again, like one of the fun parts about being in a community paper is that you kind of, again, except for the fact that I don't think I ever covered sports, so I'm sure if I look back, there's like some, it's not like a track meet, but there's something related. There's a feature somewhere, but like, you know, you had to do everything, right? Like I covered Worcester County commission and I also had to cover like the Celtic festival in Snow Hill. Like you had to do a bit of everything, which like made the fun, but also just meant that you could really kind of like learn how to do everything and learn how to, write in different ways for different audiences. The skills you learn are things that really carry you through, but also just writing well. I'm a big rant about that because a lot of people can't write well, but that's a really good thing. And I still remember like James Fisher, like getting my copy in like the first couple of months and being like, you got to fix these things. I just come from University of Maryland's journalism school. So I like thought I was a big deal. And anyway, James very kindly fixed that, but that's another issue. How did you get an interest in journalism? Did you write in high school? Did you write in middle school and things like that? Yeah, so I was always a good writer. Like, I don't know, that was the thing I I could do. And so I, when I was like six or seven, I don't know, eight, I don't know. And like my family got their first computer and that dates me a bit. But you remember that, I'm sure, right? We're of the age that remembers that. And so I don't know, maybe I was a little bit older. You know, we had this like really clunky software that you could like make your own newspaper. And I definitely made the Denny Times and like sent it to family and do all that. So, you know, when I was in high school, and I was managing editor of the high school paper, like my parents weren't surprised. So that's how I ended up at Maryland, because they had a good journalism program. And I liked that it was a big state school. I, a lot of journalism programs, I was between Maryland and BU at the end. And I felt like, you know, I went for an accepted students day at BU and they were like, oh yeah, like, you know, Boston could be a really interesting city politically if John Kerry wins. And it's like, well, DC is going to be more interesting regardless of what happens. And of course we know how John Kerry's presidential run ended. So yeah, so I ended up in Maryland and, and really loved it and had a great time. And yeah, like had class with Sharon, though I didn't really know her very well until we got to the Daily together. 
but yeah, so I think, yeah, I just, it was one of those things that I was always, no one was surprised, I guess, when I got into it. What was the aspect of journalism that you liked the most? Was it telling stories? Was it finding more about people? I I know there's so many different ways. I always see it like this. Some people, they're all about ferreting out the truth. There's other people who feel like everyone has a story to tell. There's so many unique things. And, you know, a lot of people go different ways. Yeah, I liked the storytelling. And I think that goes back to like what I said earlier, that like real life is always more interesting than fiction. And so I just, I think I probably asked too many questions. That probably sets you up to be a good reporter when you're a kid. But yeah, telling stories. And then you realize very quickly that it's so important what journalists do. You know, we think about it as telling stories, but like it's keeping people accountable. It's making sure people know what's going on in their community. And and that's really, really important. People knowing what's happening, what's happening at the county commission, what's happening at town hall, what's happening in the police department, what's happening at the schools, seeing their kids' track results. Like that's all really important. So yeah, I mean, I think I was definitely more on the telling stories side, but I think once I really started getting into it, I realized that the value is just so important. I know we're sort of doing everything in reverse. Normally for everybody who watches these podcasts, I sometimes do rundowns and go over things we can talk about. I decided we were already on the kick of journalism. We might as well save the good stuff about hockey a little bit later, but just going into the run of journalism, when did you know? Was there a story or a time in the office that you knew you made it into journalism? When did I know? Um, Oh, gosh. I mean, there were moments that I knew that I loved it. You know, I pitched a story. There's an island in the middle of the Pocomoke River that has goats on it that Snow Hill feeds. And I was like, that's cool. And then I got a lift to the island from the public works director on, I think, his personal boat because they were feeding the goats. Like, you know, you have these cool moments. But I think the flashiest story that I ever did, we'll, we'll do that one. And this, I left Politico shortly thereafter, but I wrote a story about how the Trump administration had put a lot of political appointees in at USDA who, like, didn't really have ag policy backgrounds. Like, some of them were, like, you know, they'd been good campaign volunteers and the administration had given them jobs, but they were coming from, like, selling phones at AT AT&T or, like, right out of college in, like, high-profile positions. So I wrote that story and... Rachel Maddow picked it up on NBC and all of a sudden my Twitter's blowing up. I didn't see it because I was minding my, yeah, I was doing something else, but all of a sudden my Twitter's blowing up. And then the same story ended up being in a, oh, what's his name? Mike Lewis book. I'd have to look it up, but it's like one of these political books about like the beginning of the Trump administration that like everybody's, you know, kind of liberal uncle reads and Yeah, I still haven't read that either. But um, all of a sudden, my dad calls one day and he's like, your work is like you are in this book. You're quoted in this book and your work is quoted like my friend found it and gave me the copy of golf. Like, why didn't you tell me? Oh, sorry about that. I mean, I'd heard about it, but I haven't read it. So I couldn't tell you. So, yeah, like that was probably the biggest like, like, I don't want to say that was the pinnacle because I think there were much more interesting things I did. But that was one of those like, oh, yeah, I that's me. Cool. Remember the name of the book. <laughs> you mentioned the Politico. What was that like getting in there? And I know, of course, that's uh, sort of among the creme de la creme of a lot of the news outlets. How did you get there? And I guess, how would you best sum up that experience? Um, so I got lucky with the job there. Again, they were like launching this 
ag and food section. And I didn't think I was really qualified for that. But I had a friend there who was like, what they, you know, what Politico doesn't realize because they didn't have any expertise in this and we're just hiring up is that they need someone who can speak A, about rural communities and B, about, you know, water and pesticides and chemicals and clean air and stuff like that. And so I just got really lucky. And I think there's a lot of moments in life that remind us to be kind and be the best you can be around everybody because eventually that comes back to help you. And it's not the reason you should do it, but being a good colleague, being a good friend, getting to know people pays off. And basically I had a colleague at my first job in DC who had already gone over to Politico was like, again, they don't know that they need someone with this expertise, but they do. So send me your resume. So I got really lucky. And it, working at Politico is just, it's, it is an energy that like it just doesn't sleep. Um, and sometimes that's great. And and sometimes it, it's, you know, exhausting because <laughs> we know journalism can be. Um, sometimes you kind of just want a weekend or you kind of just want to be done at a reasonable time. But the news isn't like that. And that's neither good nor bad. You know, I think that's litigated on both sides a lot. But yeah, it's just this really intense energy. And it, it feels like the center of the universe when you're there. And then when you leave, you're like, oh, okay, it wasn't. But it really did feel like it when I was there. So it was a really great experience. I learned a lot. I got to do really interesting things. I got to write about interesting things and go interesting places. So I'm really glad I had that experience. But yeah, when, when you're there, it just, you know, and I think as a journalist, you have to believe that what you're doing is one of the most important things. And that's for many reasons, including that, you know, especially at the time, the kind of like false news narrative, well, the alternative is potentially no news. And, and that's, that's not good. You work so hard and, you, and you, journalism is not a high paying industry. So like, you have to believe in what you do to put the time and effort into it that it needs kind of for like effectively, you know, the pay and the hours and, and kind of what you're dealing with there. So what would you say is the biggest sin a journalist can commit? I know there's so many different things and everybody will have a different philosophy and thought on that. But to you, what would you say is the biggest sin that a journalist could commit? Um, I think, I mean, fabricating anything. It's like somewhere, I mean, fabricating and burning a source. Those are the two things. And it's been interesting since I've left journalism on the kind of burning a source thing. Since I've left journalism and job interviews, I'll get asked like, well, you were a journalist, like things are confidential here. Like we don't share everything. And it's like, do you think anyone would have talked to me if all I did was like share everything they told me and like never go off the record and like never keep anything? Like, are you crazy? But yeah, so I, I mean, obviously you should never fabricate. Maybe that one goes without saying, but like we all know the high profile, like Jason Blair's of the world. Or that really bad, what, fifth season of The Wire where he fabricates a story and then McNulty gets involved. But yeah, burning a source is, is pretty bad. I just, it's not worth it. It's never worth it. Yeah, and it's tough where sometimes you're in the newsroom you want to talk about, but you know you can't say anything. Maybe you tend to use vague terms like, oh, this so-and-so, I heard this thing and this, but didn't don't use names. Or you don't say descriptively what said thing was. And again, definitely fabricating. Those things, I think, if it had to be on top, burning the source is number one. Yeah, so you, and, you'd go burning a source first? Burning a source to fabricate. I mean, I, I never fabricated, but I know this. You end up getting left out of a lot of news if you burn a source, but you can get a scoop sometimes. I remember this one reporter ended up 
they kept trying to get her to tell her source, but she was able to, and we try not as journalists to do shady things to, to get stuff, but you, you try to use your wiles and your wits to try to get that edge, even though I feel like in Salisbury, it sometimes it didn't matter as much because really not like the TV station was going to really care enough to run some big news, but you can get the jump on somebody else. And that's another thing I think about. I know I'm sort of going on a tangent here, but when it comes to print journalism versus television journalism, the big thing is I feel like with TV journalism, it's gone like that. It's, it's maybe a 15 to 20 second blurb and it's gone. But when you're writing something, it's there. That information's there. You get a little more space, even though when you think about it, you don't get as much space as you you really feel like you should because 300 words, that's it. That's it. We don't need any more than that. If we needed something else, you'll have to do a weekend enterprise story that should work like three weeks on while still doing uh, daily stories because that's how it works. But yeah, I always feel like there's a fine line between as a print journalist, just trying to covet sources and things like that. Don't burn them because, you know, as you mentioned, isn't it along the same lines of being nice, even though you don't do it for that ulterior motive, it just happens. As long as you do right by people, things happen and things sort of turn up in your favor sometimes. Because we've probably heard some people who, maybe even people in our own newsroom, that didn't align themselves with some of their sources and you hear very unkind things about them. I will leave that vaguely open because it happened before. It happened probably while you were here and it definitely happened after you're gone. So I've yeah. I've heard that about some other people. Yeah. It's like in life, just don't get a reputation. Just, just like you put it better, like do right by people. Just don't get a reputation unless it's a very good one. But like generally I feel like we approach reputations with like kind of negative. So just like do right by people and don't get a reputation and probably good advice from life. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's a lot of places to go ride. <laughs> And I know that, of course, in journalism, wherever you're at, you're always in the trench with your coworkers because either it's something against management sometimes or it's just we probably had our things where we just like Joe Barrel's full of it and stuff like that. And I just use that name because, again, the odds that he's listening. Well, if you're listening, hey, thanks. Thanks for your support. But uh, other than that, we just use that example because that seemed to tend to be very, especially in NY Comic County, that tended to be the, like the biggest issue. It's just like everybody's attacking the paper, especially for some of the false narratives thought that, that were put out, even though I'm going to go too far deep. I'm just going to leave it at that. Some false narratives because there are stories of certain people giving stories to certain bloggers, but I'll leave it at that. I, I really will. Cause I, I will, I will tell time, everybody's right? business. How do I say? It was such a wild time. Like all of that, like I remember what you're talking about. It's, it's crazy. Um, if, if anyone wants to know a Brazilian woman just won the women's marathon swim on, hmm. well, I doubt, I'm sure this is recorded. I'm watching NBC sports, but um, I told you I was watching the Olympics in the background and they were swimming for two hours. Uh, that means when they replay it tonight, it's going to probably go like highlights and maybe the last 15 minutes or so are of it. That's <laughs> unfortunate. Very unfortunate. But can you imagine swimming for two hours? Anyway. I can barely, I can barely imagine swimming for 10 minutes. That's, 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 that's I'm not a swimmer, but it just feels like swimming for two hours is crazy. Oh, yeah. It's weird. And I, I don't want to say it like this. And I look back on our experiences and in, in, in journalism, I look at the Daily Times fondly. I feel like I keep following. Sometimes I look at stuff and I'm like, oh, this probably isn't normal. I've seen things in toxic environments, but I'm like, eh, you know, it, it's whatever. I just keep moving. And it's like, for a certain point, and I'll say it in the newspaper, and probably a lot of people will agree, 
it felt like a little bit of a toxic environment there. Just some of the stuff that shouldn't be happening in a newsroom did happen, but that stuff sort of got cleaned up around I, what, 2011, 2012. But that's from what I saw there in Salisbury. And I probably know a lot of people off the record who probably agree. But uh, yeah, sometimes that environment was a, a tad unprofessional. <laughs> well, it, it also, like, not, not to like, I don't know, necessarily excuse behavior, but it was such a weird time to be at a newspaper, right? Like the bottom dropped out in 2008. And so I remember I started and, and in June and I think someone started at like the Bethany office or something like that. I could be getting it totally wrong, but like somebody started like two to four weeks after me. And then six weeks after I started, we had our first round of layoffs and I kept my job and that person lost theirs. And I just got lucky, right? Like I was the second to last in instead of the last in. But, you know, it was such a weird time to be at a community paper because like what we were doing was so important and like what was going on in these communities um, in terms of housing prices and people losing their jobs and like people losing their homes. That was really, really important and needed to be covered. But at the same time, I didn't get a raise while I worked for the Daily Times. I made so little. and um, It was just a constant cut. Like I remember we would all get furloughed and we realized pretty quickly that like if you took your furlough in what more than two day increments you could file for unemployment from the state and so like you know just like when dogfish still gave away beer for free we'd go up to there <laughs> on our furlough days i think and then Serga and i and a couple other people did that once like but it was just such a weird and, and like i think now journalism it seems to be figuring some things out i don't know if as an industry it's figured everything out but like like that model of how to keep going because it just fell apart then. But I, I, I also think, and and I think we say this is again, coverings, um, but you know, newsrooms are strange places where you work all the time and personalities grow. And sometimes people become editors and this is from later jobs for me, but people become editors who maybe shouldn't really be managing people, but you're a really good reporter. And so that's the obvious next step. And so it's just, it's a strange industry like that. But again, it's like one of the best. I get asked every once in a while, like some college kid or someone's friend from whatever will kind of reach out to talk about like career advice. And I can give no career advice, right? Like I, you'll figure it out. It's my best <laughs> career advice. But it, like I say that, I do think that like, if you are thinking about being a journalist, you should go and be a journalist because you will learn more doing that than you will anything else. So it's my, my casual plug for journalism and my, career advice that is not career advice. <laughs> so. Oh, no. Yeah. And I agree with that. I also think that when it comes to journalism, just be ready for the grind. If you really love it, it may not love you back a lot, but eventually it can pay off sometimes. I mean, and the biggest thing is this probably goes for everything in life. Shoot your shot. If there's an opportunity you want, go for it, because the odds are you may not feel like you're skilled enough, but if they love you enough, they will hire you and they will train you for it. I think that's the biggest thing. Anybody who's ever hesitant for maybe either it's not being the uh, big fish in a little pond anymore thing or just sort of fear of change. If you go for it, there's odds that, you know, you may not get the job because if other people vying for that job, you know, it's going to come down to a particular thing. But if it's how much a potential hirer will love you, and want you to be there, sometimes that's all that matters. And I know you talk about the layoffs. I told this and I was, I call it, as I mentioned to uh, Ricky Pollitt, I call it the Bowser moment. 
I go to Super Mario Brothers, the first Super Mario Brothers for Nintendo, you know, where you're in Bowser's castle and you're trying to get over the bridge. You pull the axe and Bowser is standing there as the bridge falls out and he falls <laughs> into the lava. Bowser moments are those unexplained moments where, well, not even unexplained, are those moments where you get caught flat footed, especially when it comes to layoffs. Those are the things where it's like, well, you thought you were safe. You're not safe. I can imagine the days. And it happened when I was at the news journal, too. Somebody got let go. A couple people got let go while they were off on their off day. Oh, my gosh. Right. Oh, yeah. Such a bad time. We've seen couples get let go. And I remember that specific day. I see them both go out that same day. They were both, you know, let go. And I think both one was hired back. But, you know, it's, it's crazy. Funny they're married now. But, <laughs> you know, it's, that's how it is. Those newspaper relationships, right? Like, you know, that's a common thing. The newsroom, yeah. newsroom relationships, like, oh, we're together all the time. So we should just date. It's cool. My God. Yeah. It was a weird time. It's a tough industry, but it's, it's great for as long as you can do it. When did you feel it was time to get out of journalism? Um, again, I, you know, late 2017, I just kind of looked around or probably mid 2017 and I actually wasn't committed to getting out of journalism. I like knew I wanted to do something different and I knew I, I needed, I, I knew that I was ready to leave Politico um, and kind of look for really just a saner pace, a saner work-life balance. And I think people use that too much, but like I was working the same hours that my friends who like worked for really like high powered law firms were working, but they were making six times the salary that I was. And so it's like, if you don't have time to go to the grocery store and clean your house, like, you know, like I couldn't afford to pay someone to do that. So I kind of looked around and I really wasn't actually committed to leaving journalism. I actually went to the Congressional Research Service because I was like, I think I can do this and like figure out what to do next. I don't totally feel like taking another journalism job right now because I know what that entails. But like if I go to this place that is nonpartisan, I won't be branded as anything. I'm not, you know, going in house somewhere to, you know, do communications or something like that. Like I, I can do this for a couple of years, figure out what I want to do. And, and I really expected to go back to journalism. And then I got there and I kind of continued to job hunt once I got there. And I just, every job I saw, I was just like, um, I was like, nope, that's the journalism jobs just aren't there. But the thing you learn, well, one of the many things you learn as a journalist, right? Like or one of the many things you defend as a journalist is like your role in the First Amendment, right? Freedom of the press. But like, as I sat and looked around and again, had this head filled of with like policy knowledge and like the workings of DC, you know, the other thing that the First Amendment is the right to advocate the government, effectively the right to lobby. So I, I just kind of, you know, how we tell stories and how we think about stories is a big thing in journalism, but it's not the only place that we do that. And I think the other problem as I kind of stepped back and took a breather during my year in government was like, as a journalist, you sit there and see all the things that are wrong. Like all of the places where governments or police forces or individuals or coaches or whatever, all of the places where you're like, that's a really bad idea. Like we'll pick on a sports example. There was what the report that came out today about the NCAA and how it just like, shamelessly was biased towards men's teams in, in the NCAA basketball tournament. We all saw those pictures on Twitter, what, last year of the women's like 
pile of yoga mats and two free weights for the NCAA tournament versus the men's situation or like the food and all of this. And like, I didn't need a private investigator to come out with this report today that was like, yeah, NCAA, like you are totally like, you know, crippling the women's program for the men's program. Like you saw those pictures, you could see other things. You know, I went to University of Maryland, which has a wonderful women's basketball program, frankly, better than the men's program because the men always choke and the women under Brenda Fries do real well. Um, but, you know, you could see even on campus the resources like that were put toward the men versus the women. And so when you're a journalist, you sit there and you, you write about it, but sometimes you just want to scream like, the hell are you doing? <laughs> and kind of point out in like an opinionated way, like you can obviously do it in like an unbiased way in journalism, but like, you know, how they should fix it. And like journalists know everything about the thing they cover. Like no, no one knew Worcester County government better than me when I was, I guess the commissioners might've, but like outside of the government building, very few people knew it better than I did. But you don't get to say as a journalist, like, here's the solution. Like, not in the way you'd like to say it. If you find someone else who'll say it, you're fine. But like generally you don't. So when I decided, I did my year in government, my like hangout year, basically, I was like, you know, let's go try and solve some of these issues. Like, you know, if I've sat there and thought to myself, like, you idiot, what are you doing? But not been able to either say or write that, like, let's go do that. Let's see what that's like. And so that's kind of what I do now. I, I get to you know, I've done it in-house um, and now I do it kind of as a as an advisory role, as a consulting role, but just kind of try and say what what the solutions are, like tell people what I, what I think the answer is, which, you know, you, again, you just don't always get to do as a journalist, which is tough. I know being a columnist, I know a lot of people tend to... And I think this is a, probably the biggest display of ignorance of people who read news and consider opinion as fact when it is just opinion. And like I said, I think that's another thing. Columnists, I think that opportunity to be a columnist is interesting. Some people can revel in it. Some people always have something to say about it. And where, again, that's their objective opinion about a particular thing. But I know some people tend to try to stay away that I'm here. Here's the news. You read it. This is what they said. This is what they said. You decide the facts, you know, the, the true impartiality as opposed to some media outlets that say that you should decide. But, you know, was being a columnist writing things like that, that did that ever cross your mind? Yeah, I think when so I was a columnist in my high school paper, just casual plug for, <laughs> for myself uh, 20 odd years ago. And, and I enjoyed that. And I thought about that. I just I'm not sure how you break into being a columnist. Like, and may, maybe it's just that's in like DC. Like, if I'd gone somewhere else, I could have tried to do that. But yeah, I never, um, I never like got that far, I guess. Because <laughs> I mean, some people do it really, really well, right? And you've got like some columnists, like the Dana Milbanks of the world, who are very funny about it. Or, you know, there's others that, you know, like point out the problem in a very like factual news way and then point out the solution as well. Um, but that's really an art form that I don't I don't know if I was quite was quite there. So now I just try and problem solve from from the outside. 
Yeah, I was curious about that because I know some people before feel like, oh, yeah, I'd love to write a column. But, man, you got to cut your teeth first before you can uh, get that opportunity. Maybe some places, smaller places, you get that opportunity if you're doing both. But, I mean, I don't know. That's probably I mean, I what I wrote even at the Daily Times, I wrote columns just sort of on the Redskins or the Orioles or something like that. And even then, that was just such a tedious Thing. And I and I love writing and I love researching and just especially when it comes to sports stuff, I love getting the information, statistics, just looking stuff up because I'm the type of person that can go down a Wikipedia or some type of rabbit hole and end up going hours. I remember the weirdest one I was reading about the highway system and I ended up getting to the history of crack cocaine. I don't know how it happened, but it just did. And it, it's some of the weirdest stuff that you would never expect. But I feel like it's and also you have to crank out columns constantly and it's like sometimes you just don't have anything to write <laughs> well and sports is always said to be the the like different one right Cause like inherently like you covering the redskins from salisbury or pick one right like but you know salisbury cares about the outcomes of the redskins sorry washington football team because huh, really uh <laughs> cares about the washington football team i'm dating myself there uh, not that I haven't already, you know, the papers in this region are biased towards wanting the Washington football team to win, which when I moved to D.C., I became a blanket Washington sports fan, except for the Washington football team, because I was like, Dan Snyder's a jerk. And we all know that. And I don't like football enough to to even pretend to care. So it's, it's a, this backing up. This is all to say that, you know, like inherently, like there's some biases when you're doing like same as if you're covering a snow hill track meet right like you're covering snow hill you kind of like your readers want snow hills win so sports is kind of interesting on that but i will say i'm kind of shocked that you ever needed to look up any sports data any sports data <laughs> just anything like i i think i mentioned this i definitely listened to a couple episodes of this before coming on just to see and i just whew, like <laughs> What was the color of the Memphis Grizzlies jersey in 1976? And you're like, oh, well, obviously. Technically, that is a trick question because the Grizzlies did not exist until 1995, but when they were in Vancouver. You're still proving my point. Yeah, it's crazy. And I go into the researching of sports. I used to read sports books. I always tell people this. I used to have bookshelf right beside my bed when I was a kid. They were full of Encyclopedia Britannicas and these red and black encyclopedias compton's encyclopedia i remember gold letters on the side with the top part black and you have a little bit of red in the middle with the number and gold and again they were pretty outdated very quickly as as most printed books are they were no good after 1987 because by 1990 it still had reagan as the president so those things i would read those things constantly and then when i started going to school I wasn't really big on the sports then. I honestly, my thing was just watching game shows all the time. And man, you name one, I, I probably watched it. And then, and then I started getting into sports, watching ESPN a little bit when I was about eleven. So basically, I picked up stats from there. I would watch every sport, every team. Well, 
except for soccer. I still don't like soccer. Never liked it then. But then I would read the books. They were these white NBA books. They had them in the library. Hard, sort of hardcover, maybe about 20, 30 pages. I would read everything about every team inside and out. Of course, it was up to 1991. So you, to find an Orlando Magic book was tough enough because they had just came into the league in like 89 or 90. And I would just read about every single one of those. And then, like I said, aside from that, it was just... I always wanted to be history major too, because, uh, I, of course, when I went to school, they had no history department. So after a major change, I became an English major. So. <laughs> well, so my family's encyclopedia growing up was from 1968. It was like oh, a wow. big old encyclopedia Britannica, which I'm sure was very expensive. My parents got it used at some point. Like, I'm sure it was, it was like the full, like huge volume, but yes, the moon landing hadn't happened yet. <laughs> This is problematic. Speaking of things, I haven't told this story, but a friend of mine I met in college, me and him were like, like the best of friends. And and like, you know, he was at a wedding and all these other things. And we had this night. My wife is there. Me and my wife there. We're at his house as parents house. He was still living there, um, like right after college. He found this board game of this old game show, Tic-Tac-Doe, not the 1980 version, but one from 1958. So this is pre-moon landing, pre-civil rights movement, pre-Motown, pre-Elvis, pre-Beatles, pre-basically, you know, color television. Yeah. And we spent almost three hours deadlock playing a game after game after game after game after game. <laughs> you know, because it's just like a tic-tac-toe board. And, you know, try to get three in a row. And we just kept blocking each other for like three or four hours trying to play one full match. <laughs> that was all. That's that's great. That's pretty funny. He's a physics major, so oh, trying to go to toe-to-toe yeah. in a trivia battle with a physics major, that was insane. Really, if I'm ever playing trivia somewhere and get a phone of friends, like you are <laughs> definitely top of the list. Like and I my trivia, I'm not that great, but like you not that trivia gets phone a friend, but like and not that I cheat at trivia, but I'm just saying if I ever get one, you are my single phone call. Um I also appreciate uh, that Ben Pinserga has, has liked the tweet about my shout out to Ben Pinserga. So there we go. I'll shout out again. <laughs> I didn't know if he saw it, but yeah, I just saw it as well. And that's a cool thing. I was like, well, she gave the shout out. So that, that has to be great. I, I know we talk about this, but I know you played hockey and I'm in, I'm curious, how did you get interested in hockey and where did it all start? So I grew up in Southern Connecticut. And it's just like a big hockey place. Like all of New England is, but like every town has a rink. And on Friday night, there were skating lessons and everyone learned how to skate. And all the moms kind of sat in the stands with tumblers of like spiked hot chocolate, basically. <laughs> and like hung out while we all skated. And then there was like a free skate afterward. So I learned how to skate as a kid because my mom wanted to sit and like chit chat with her spiked hot chocolate with her friends who were the parents of my friends. I was fine at it. Like I was never going to be a figure skater. I'm also just kind of built like a tree trunk. So like grace and poise are not my thing and never have been and never will be. So I learned to skate. Wasn't awful. Wasn't, was never going to be a figure skater. Um, my brother and I learned at the same time, he's only a year and a half older than me. So we kind of did all those things together and he was just much better than I was. And I think he probably would have been a really good figure skater, but I think there was a lot of pressure on him to play hockey because that's what every seven, eight, nine, ten year old boy in, in Southern Connecticut or probably most of New England is 
pressured into doing so. He played hockey and I showed no interest in it because no one really wants to be dragged around a cold rink when their brother's having fun and they just have to sit in the stands while their mom drinks them. No, she didn't drink that much spiked hot chocolate. I just feel like I should note that there wasn't that much in the hot chocolate. But anyway, so my, my brother played like the town rec league um, hockey and then in, I guess, winter of 1998, he was like, okay, I'm done. You know, like everybody else is more competitive, and like more into this than I am. So I think I'm going to tag out. And of course, winter of 1998, speaking of the Olympics, was the first Winter Olympics that had women's ice hockey as a sport. So all of a sudden, like, I've, I've plugged that I love the Olympics. I, the Winter Olympics happens to be my favorite because every sport is a person throwing their body down a sheet of ice in some way, shape, or form. Summer Olympics is great. I'm now watching Australia and the Russians play water polo, so that's going well. But there's that like added like sheet of iceness about the Winter Olympics. And so, you know, we'd watch the hockey tournament, and here you have the US and Canada in their first Olympic matchup which like is still the best game, I would argue, and you're going to tell me I'm wrong and cite some crazy statistic about it. But I would argue that the USA-Canada women's gold medal game, which it normally is them, uh, is like one of the best games in sports every four years. Like it's just, there is so much history there. There's like, you know, other teams, like they're getting a lot better, but like for the longest time, women's hockey elsewhere just hasn't been on the same level. And like the times when the gold medal game is not USA Canada is when they're in the same bracket and knock each other out sooner. So anyway, watch that. And the Canadians at the time had these crazy pink jerseys and I was like, that's a bad idea. And I'm really glad women's sports has gotten past the pink. <laughs> yeah. So I watched that. And then that spring, my brother's like finishing his final season of Pee Wee Hockey. And my father's so excited that he doesn't have to get up at, you know, the crack of dawn to take my brother to the rink. And there was a flyer at the rink that said they were launching a girls league. And I was like, I want to play. And my father was like, oh, at least we have the gear. <laughs> you know, like we're not buying you anything new. But yeah, so I've kind of played on and off ever since. I played uh, through middle school. I was good enough to make, and this is a resentment right here. I was good enough to make the travel team, like the, the like local girls travel team. And in, in Connecticut at the time, there were quite a few and there was just happened to be like they were starting one out of the town that I lived in and I made that when I was a uh, in eighth grade and then I had to quit when I was in high school because my parents made me do marching band and I'm still salty about it uh so I I played field hockey instead in, in high school and that was a different different game altogether but I kept playing like rec league women's or girls when I could uh, I played with the boys until probably like 17 ish I think through junior year and at that point, well, I guess junior year wasn't 17, but I played with the boys through junior year, just kind of like local rec league hockey. And at that point, like they just started to get significantly bigger than me. And I was as fast as them and potentially as good as them, but I wasn't faster or better. And so I just started getting injured because when you play contact hockey with people who are significantly larger than you, then that happens. So yeah. And then, so went to Maryland didn't really think about playing hockey in Maryland. Doesn't have a full like university team. Sophomore year decided to play club hockey. Um, and that was awesome and made some of my like favorite people at Maryland or made some of my best friends at Maryland playing hockey there. So did that for a couple of years. One of my misgivings about, or one of my like hesitations about moving to the shore was that I wouldn't be able to play hockey. And so I didn't play hockey when I, uh, when I was out there. But then when I moved back, the DC area has a pretty good like women's hockey community 
you know, there's quite a few people here of like all ages. There's a lot of learn to play programs, you know, and then there's a lot of women who played in college, played D1, played club, played, you know, in club at some, you know, New England upper Midwestern schools is, you know, D something. So there's a lot of folks who play here. There's a really strong community. Um, And so I was floating around through like rec leagues. And then, I don't know, five or six years ago, I started playing for a, I'm like an adult woman who plays for a travel hockey team, like kids do, you know, like I, um, so, you know, like every weekend I'm wherever, you know, in normal times, of course, COVID, COVID put a damper on that. But so, yeah, so I play for a team now, my, my like regular season team is a team called the Washington Wolves. It's the best, you know, it's so hard to make friends as an adult. And I feel really lucky that I stumbled into a great crew of friends playing hockey who are like the smartest and the coolest people. And I'm so lucky. And this is all to say that hockey is a super fun sport. Everyone should try it and just be okay with the bruises. And that also like adult sports are great because you make friends. Um, So yeah, so that's what I do now. We're hopefully heading into a season again this fall, kind of TBD to see what Delta does. And of course, DC just had a mask mandate put into effect. So our practice rink and our home ice is actually in the district. So we'll see what that means. But yeah, I'm like pretty hopeful that we're going to have a hockey season again this winter because we didn't last year. What positions did you, were you a defenseman? Did you play forward or? I'm a forward. I play wing and I'm pretty flexible on either side, but I am one of those players. I am not the fastest. I am not like also not good at talking myself up apparently, but I, I am one of those players who like, I can figure out how to be in position, but I'm also like, my skill set is getting in the way, right? Like, and, and in any sport, you need people get in the way of the other team because that frees up other people to like do things like score and make nice plays. But my particular, like if, if getting in the way got points, like be real high, uh, it doesn't, but screening goalies and like blocking shots, real good at all that. But yeah, so I play wing and pretty much always have. How's your wrist shot and one timer? <laughs> uh, given that I had like, I played last night just in like a local beer league. And given that I, missed all my shots. I had like three breakaways and I didn't score on any of them. So need some work. I'm going to blame COVID on that though. Um, it's been a long, long off season. Okay. If there was a scouting report, a Jenny Hopkinson scouting report on your hockey abilities, how would you best describe your, your style of play? Plus who did you try to emulate? So I'll, I'll take the second one first. I am not a like bottomless pit of memorizing sports facts. And like, I've never been good at like following teams. I'm also not good at like watching TV shows at the scheduled time that they're on. It's just like, I don't know, really the the whole watching things on demand is, is really good for me. But so I've like, and growing up, like I grew up in Rangers territory. My family didn't really watch games. Like we went to them every once in a while, but like it wasn't a thing. So I, I'm like one of those people that like play sports, but I don't really, you know, like I don't watch them. I, I root for the Caps as part of my like blanket DC sports teams minus the Washington football team role. And like, like going to Caps games, like I know who Ovechkin is and TJ Oshie and, you know, like can pull the Caps players out of the lineup at this point in time. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's not like I'm like trying to be cool like someone else. This is the Jenny Hutchinson style of play. <laughs> I don't know if there's a professional player that's like big on getting in the way um (laughs) but like it's also always fun like um what now that we have women's hockey players are kind of becoming better known and you've got like 
Glamour twins. We've got all these other people. So that's always really fun. And of course, we have the fledgling WNHL. But yeah, I just don't watch enough hockey. Maybe I'd be better if I did. I mean, again, my style of play is is the getting in the way style of play. Like, and it works, right? Like, if you are screening a goalie, sometimes you get the goal off it. Like, you know, I'm a like garbage goal getter and stuff like that. But they still count. So um, I'll defend that. Uh, Grace, you weren't the enforcer type on the eyes, were you? <laughs> so I like, I am sturdy. So I like, you know, and like women's hockey is inherent, like has to be, in, oh, mega, sorry, men's hockey players. Like it to a point has to be like faster and kind of crisper than men's hockey because you, you can't just throw your body into someone to get a puck. Like you actually have to play the puck versus like play the man. I am like kind of taller in some cases and like, like sturdier than some people. And, and it, less in travel but like when you play summer league and there's like different levels of play I have to be really careful because like and I think this is the case in a lot of sports like when you're playing rec level but like if I go up against a player who's like really new or like not that sturdy like I'm gonna get the penalty (laughs) because it's like I'm the sturdy one so they're gonna run into me and I'm gonna be fine and they're gonna fall over and then the whistle is gonna blow and I'm like I didn't I didn't I just, I just stay upright well. Like that's, I didn't do anything, but that's fine, right? Um, it's, reverse, it's reverse prison rules where you go in, the, you know, they always say attack the biggest person in the prison just to show that you're tough. Yeah, yeah, basically, basically. But it's, it's less so when like, you know, I play travel with the wolves than I, everyone's, everyone's very good. But um, yeah, got, got to be a little bit careful when you're playing like, you know, beer summer league. Uh, did you ever think about coaching or some, even not as a head coach, but even as assistant or something like that? Yeah. You know, I just, I don't know if I'd be that good. <laughs> I've not thought about it. I worry that I don't have enough. I think I'd like really basic learn to place clinics. I could probably be somewhat helpful, but I don't know if I'd be good enough to coach. Maybe that's not the thing to admit on a sports podcast, but, but then I, I also think there's a level of knowing the technical side of like, when you make a wrist shot, like, at this point, and I'm not getting any better at hockey in part because I'm getting older. So it's like those like competing factors there. But like, I, I know how to do a wrist shot. I know my body knows how to do all of that. But I, I don't always know that I can explain it to someone else. And I think to be a good coach, you have to be really good at being like, here's what you do. But like, here's the pieces as to like how you do it. And And I think I've played for so long at this point that like, a lot of it is muscle memory. And I think that also means that a lot of bad habits are there to stay. But yeah, I just think you're stuck with stuff at a certain time. And if you can't explain, like break down, like a crossover backward skating into like individual pieces and explain it to someone, like I can do all of those things, but I, I, I can do them because I've done them so many times. For anyone who decides to get into learning how to ice skate, what is the biggest piece of advice that you'd give them? It's going to hurt the first day. <laughs> but I think ice skating, it's not like running either. Like people are like, oh, it's just like running on ice. It's not like running. So you're, you're going like out and back instead of just forward. It's my running with my hands for those people listening and not watching. But, you know, it's not the same as running on ice. It's like a different motion. But I think it's one of those things. I think the first day or two are the hardest. And then the learning curve is it starts really steep and then tapers. I think it's you know, once you get over that hurdle of getting those fundamentals down with, with a good coach who's not me, um, like I think the learning curve is, is pretty straightforward. 
So I know normally, as we've talked so much about hockey, I mean, I guess as we sort of go on and transition to a few other things, I guess the biggest question would be, if you didn't get into a journalism initially, what would you have done? Oh, that's an interesting question. I want to, well, your answer would be, I would be like a sports historian expert. I don't know. If I hadn't been a journalist, and again, like all I think I was really good at doing was writing. So I don't know if it would have been something writing related. I think... I like my secret, I'm saying this on a podcast, but if I could have done anything, you know, regardless of whether or not I would have been good at it, uh, and this is very girly, but I think I like would have loved to try a hand at being like a jewelry designer, like a jeweler. I think that would have been really fun and kind of speaks to like playing with things and playing with like different metals and different structures and stuff like that. And I always like the idea of doing that, but I never took an art class. Like I like, was into stuff like that as a kid and then like spent, you know, high school and college writing. So, but yeah, that's my weird, like if I'd done something else, I think it, I would have tried to do that. So here's the thing. You would have thought it would have been in sports. Mine would have been one. I would have loved, I thought down the road of journalism wasn't for me. And I know sports wasn't going to be for me. I would have loved to have been a television historian, just the, the history of television. And I love I watch far too much television, not as much now, but I would have loved to sort of go through the history of television and things like that. I've always got this mindset of you can tell what makes a perfect sitcom just because there's like five character archetypes that that goes through it. There's always the protagonist. Then you always have the oblivious slash idiot character. You have the schemer slash deviant. Then you have the, the person with the heart of gold. And then you have the hard ass. And they don't always have to be separate characters. They can be, you know, a chunk of characters. But I use the perfect example with Night Court. That's an example where all the archetypes were separate. And then, you know, they would tend, oh, number six was the voice of reason. So, those and that's a perfect example. Night Court was a perfect example of that. The other thing, I always wanted to be a game show host. That was one thing. And I wanted to be a TV executive because I see how people put together schedules and I think that I can probably do much better than half of these people who work in the television industry now. But those were my three things that I always had an interest in other than sports. Non-sports related, those would have been the things. That's awesome. I that's those are good answers. And now every time I watch a sitcom, I'm gonna think about like it's serious. You watch any show. You can watch Seinfeld. You can watch. It, it doesn't matter what it is from the newest one. Some shows pull it off well. Some don't. Taxi. We just went through bench watching and stuff. We watched Cheers, and the past two, final two seasons of Cheers were horrible to get through. But watching Taxi because they only have half of the hundred some odd episodes on streaming places going through that it went through so seamlessly it was it felt like even though it was like a show that was made four years before cheers it basically set like so many different archetypes and so many different character tropes that probably were done so well and it was a show that had like a whole ton of stars that came out of that show interesting interesting so i have a question for you and okay. i thanks to the social medias i saw that you're gonna be a dad right Is that yes there's going to be a little Earl or Earl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it a boy or a girl or don't you know, or don't you uh, know? We'll find out. Uh, actually, we'll find out August 21st. Uh, that is going to be the big thing. We're, we're going to actually sort of do a bit of a gender reveal. We're going to have the sonogram before that. And then we're just going to try to be as, 
as oblivious as possible about it and just wait till the cake opens shooting out a bunch of sprinkles or whatever color the funfetti cake will end up being but yeah i'm excited i always tell people the biggest concern i had was just i'm 38 now had it been like if i was 28 it'd, it'd be something different i always worry about now will i have the energy to do it and i'll be 56 when the kid graduates you know if everything works out right i will be 56 uh when the kid graduates you know that was my only one concern as a parent and you try to and some people struggle with conceiving and stuff like that and that was something that it happened because the one the biggest thing that you, you hate hearing a lot is oh when are you guys gonna have a kid because it's like oh well if you knew what was going on you probably wouldn't have asked that question but you know it's yeah. sort of like believe me if they could just drop out of the sky like the whole uh, i guess the myth of the stork it would work but yeah yeah I, i'm excited about it and i am looking forward to that opportunity i mean i know some people can see it as a, a weird thing why would you pass why would you want a little version of yourself when I always can see it as pass along knowledge and stuff like that? I guess some people will see it to build a better human, but you know, other than that, it's just like, I'm very pumped for you, but I have to ask, what is the one sport you don't want your child to play? Like, what is the sport that would be like, I cannot watch this. Like, no, like little, little, little Earl comes to you and says, dad, Here's the thing I want to do. Like, what's the sport that you're like, oh. Hmm. You know, that's the thing. I, my wife wouldn't want our child to play football. I'm sort of indifferent about it. I, my thing is this. If you get in early to play it, you don't want to be under the curve. I honestly don't have uh, a sport that I would just say, no, this is non-negotiable. You are not playing this. Like badminton uh, or like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I would tell them that, hey, if you're going to play – you better make the effort in doing it because we're not all going to keep being drug out here for you to either be mediocre or not want to play you, and that. And you play that one season. And if you don't like it, then we don't have to do it again. That's yeah. my whole thing. It, I don't want to be one of those sports dads, but I don't have a particular sport. If you want to play soccer? Sure. I'll learn more about soccer. I soccer to me. And I say this, I watch hockey because I could tell you, when I started watching hockey, I was watching the Caps, so I could tell you it was Don Beaupre and the goal for the Caps. It was Joy Juno, Peter Bondra, Callie Johansson, Sylvain Cote, uh, Keith Jones at one point before he was created for Chris Simon. And I could tell you, I, I, yeah, a little bit of the Caps stuff that I watched. But, you know, soccer to me is boring. Boring. It is the most boring sport. But, I like, if they want to play soccer, go ahead and play soccer. I just – I have no particular preference on a sport. I got to make a plug for soccer here for a second. First of all, I would argue as a parent, soccer is a good one because there's very little gear. And like my parents had to pay for hockey gear. So like soccer, not that much gear, right? Like cleats, shin guards, ball, check. The other plug for soccer, and I'm going to say this and it's the wrong audience, but I'm going to do it anyway. The problem with baseball and football is that you never know when it's going to end, right? Like this is why I can't watch, again, I've already kind of gone after the Washington football team, but like, it doesn't help that like, I find football mind numbing because it could, the game could take two hours. It could take four hours. It could take six hours. Same with baseball. So I would imagine <laughs> I am not the one becoming a parent here, but like, I'm going to make a plug for soccer. You know how long soccer takes? It's 90 minutes, maybe a hundred. There's a halftime in the middle, a couple of minutes added on to the end. You can time your watch by it. So I just, I think it's a fun game though. I, the women's, again, plugging my Olympic watching, the women's national team was a very, has been very boring this Olympics, but especially like given how much talent is there. So I agree, boring soccer games can be bad. 
but at least you know exactly when it's going to end. That is the most television friendly thing because like I said, they'll be done in under two hours and you can go back to your day. That's pretty much when I was working in the newsroom in the news journal, like the, the world couples and all. And it's like, man, but those games ended so quickly and like, Hey, you moved on your day until the next one came on, which is like, uh, I don't know. I just soccer to me was boring. And I, it's funny. I, I'll ride on baseball all day. I'm an Orioles fan. My allegiances were pretty much all Washington teams except for baseball, just because growing up there was, it was only the Redskins and it started following football to 94. So it was the Redskins, the Bullets, the Caps and the Orioles. Those are my teams. I will not change. I will not change either way. My allegiance will not go to the Nationals or to the Ravens. I, I stick with my four teams. I will die with those. But like I said, comparing baseball to football, Honestly, the average length of a football game is probably the same average length of a baseball game. And there's just as much downtime in between when they're moving the chain, setting things up. The ref blows the whistle, gives the motion to go play in between as there is in between a pitcher getting set, throwing a ball and pitching ball and at bat. The time, there is much downtime. So anyone who says football, who says baseball is boring and is a diehard football fan is completely oblivious to how much downtime that is in between each play. Hey, I am saying both are too slow. (laughs) I'm not trying to defend one over the other. I mean, I will go to a Nats game because it's a good social activity, but like, I'm not defending. And I, of course, won't go to a Washington football team game because again don't want my money going there and don't want like expired delta peanuts or whatever it was but uh but yeah i'm not defending either on the timing i think both are too slow and that probably explains why i play a sport that is also a very like confined period of time like it's not like basketball where you can foul out and make the last five minutes go on for 20 minutes like no you've got your 15 minutes stoppage here and there but like it's not dragging you can't stop the clock like and move the ball to the other, or move the puck to the other end of the ice. So I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that hockey is a better sport than all of them, and so clearly that's what your child should do. It's a long way to reach that point. And now, we, of course, we've talked about a lot of things on the ice and hockey. Now it's time to ask ice-breaking questions because it's funny that I go back to my time at UMES and my journalism teacher, Marilyn Burkle, she always had us interview uh, media personalities, TV reporters, newspaper reporters, and just sort of come up with icebreaking questions. Like normally they'd ask us like something that's out of the norm aside from their career. Just like if you were color, what color would you be? Stuff like that. I've never thought about what color I would be, but these are some of the icebreaking questions I wanted to ask you. Okay. Who is the celebrity a lot of people say that you resemble? Someone when I was much younger said, I look like Alicia Silverstone from Clueless. And I was like, that's not true. But I'm going to go with that because someone once said it. Okay. If you had someone star in a movie about your life, who would you have it be? Uh, Earl, I'm not good with people's names. Um, who would star in a movie about my life? Um, I don't know. Uh, pass. <laughs> who, who do you think would play me in a movie about my life? Whew, I'm trying to think because there's a fine line. Some people say it's an actor. They feel like can pull off the role, which technically that could be any actor that can pull off a role. You think like they, they can have a personality that matches a good enough actor can match, can match you. I mean, Daniel day Lewis could probably match any of us personality wise. If you give them enough time, um, Hmm. Who would I say? You know, that's a pass on me. Cause I can't think of anybody. Okay, Daniel um, Lewis, I will pick him to play me <laughs> in a movie about my life. Um, if there was a movie about your life, what would the title be? Um, 
I'm making Probably your work. Late. I don't know. <laughs> you are. Um, if there was a movie about my life, uh, it would be something about a gin and tonic, or maybe that's it. Actually, something about a gin and tonic would be the title of the movie about my life. <laughs> um, what would be the biggest advice that you would tell uh, Jenny Hopkinson of 20 years ago? Oh my gosh, not to worry. You know, like tw- 20 years ago, I was. 14 and like worried about where I was going to go to college and like worried about success. And like, I, I've kind of floated. I like not not, everyone kind of does, right? Like you you do something and then you figure out the next thing to do and it's fine. Um, so I think I'd tell myself just, it'll work out. It's worked out thus far. (laughs) We'll go with that. Always wear sunscreen. Look at me. Always wear sunscreen. (laughs) (laughs) I am so pale. Uh. You know, of course, I I always talked about beaches and stuff like that. I was like, I don't have much of a reason to tan and it's just not going to do me any good. But it's always interesting when I hear people talk, oh, yeah, wear sunscreen or tan. I'm like, right, well, that might not work for me, but <laughs> I always think about this where we're at now. And Ari just like everything for us is like first world problems, not an issue of anything major. We're not worrying about, oh, God gonna be pay our bills or, or all of that stuff it's like oh man will this amazon package come when i'm here so i don't have to worry about it sitting on the porch while i'm gone you know stuff like that yeah right 20 year old me should worry about amazon packages being delivered she didn't know what amazon packages were but like 20 years ago if i could tell myself that it's like try and time your amazon deliveries but yeah to your point it's like i feel very lucky that like i think i have been lucky um and so I guess I'm lucky that I'm telling myself 20 years ago, like, it'll it'll work out, um, which is an angsty teenager is probably not advice that you would take. But there you go. Very lucky for that. I'm trying to think anything else, because I always ask all these types of questions. And honestly, those are like the four that are like the brand new ones. But let's throw this out. Favorite curse word. I do, you know, like working in newsrooms, I used to swear so much. My first job in D.C. covering the Obama administration, they would do Friday afternoon news dumps like shamelessly, like just like like they had to stop doing it because their press folks rioted. And we're like, we can't work until like 8 p.m. every Friday because at 430. You just... So we used to call them F-bomb Fridays because there was just like you, were, you could like time stuff to it. It'd be like it's after three on a Friday. Like, what are they going to put out? Like, it was the worst. Um so I guess it's not, I like, I'm trying to get past my F-bomb days, but I'd say F-bomb Fridays. Uh, I guess it's all one word to me now. Oh my gosh. I feel like there's so much more and there's probably more stuff that I haven't even touched on. Anything that you would like to add? I know we're going to get to these shout outs and, and promoting stuff, but anything like you would add that you feel like people should know, whether it's about journalism, whether it's about hockey or anything else. Uh, I know you talked about your love for the Olympics and you prefer the, the Winter Olympics over the summer ones. Uh, yes. And uh, now I'm watching the U.S. women's water polo team uh, beat Canada. They're at 9-2. You know, I'm going to change my mind on my answer for what job I would want. Lately, it has been to actually be a TV executive at NBC and stop rerunning the same like five games at the Olympics over and over again. I've seen women's soccer like lose to Canada like three times. But yeah, that's not really an answer. Is there anything else I'd like people to know other than my weird obsession with the Olympics and that I'm a recovering journalist who on most weekends chases a piece of plastic down a sheet of ice with a stick? No, that pretty much covers me. Oh, I have asked 
if you were to write a book about a particular topic, what would it be? It would be a nonfiction book. Like I haven't found the story yet. Do you want to write a book? Like, cause I want to write a book. It's like been one of those like kind of weird, like, I feel like I have to, but like, I would love to. And I'm just waiting for that story. Like that story to write a book about. I just, I don't know what that story is. I actually am. This is breaking news here. I am actually thinking about writing. Well, I'm thinking about, I started working on my outline of a book that is nonfiction, just sort of about, you know, doing trivia contests and going on uh, sports jeopardy and other pursuits of, I wouldn't say pursuits of folly, but other game show and trivia show pursuits and stuff like that. That's something it's in the embryonic stages. I talked about doing it about a year or so ago, and then I wrote an outline and then I stopped. I wrote a chunk of it one day and then I was like, eh, I'll get back to it eventually. And then a few weeks ago, I finished writing an outline and now it's just me trying to put together recollections, probably using some of the blog posts I wrote and things like that, just to start that and then up to present day. Hopefully it would end as the next show that I get on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited for this. You need a like punny title, like sort of like the king of knowledge, like the Earl of Knowledge. I I already got one. I already got one. Can you called, share it or is it too soon? Oh, no, nah, it's, it's fine. It's, I call it Joy Buzzer. Oh. Joy Buzzer. My journey in trivia with the friends and money I made. I like that. Something like that. I have to tighten it up. But yeah, Joy Buzzer. That's already the uh, the working title that I'm going with. I'm looking forward to the day I get to order an advanced copy. It's funny. I have an interesting story. My friend who's a physics major, he does his own Twitch channel and I, I watch him most times. And so he follows a lot of people who do like live streams of people do their own, I guess, web version of game shows. So I'm sitting in there watching people play sports themed Jeopardy. And then I'm just sitting there watching and it's like, because the, the thing about Sports Jeopardy was if it were on Hulu or Netflix, it probably would have done better instead of being on Crackle. And the problem was that so few people saw it, except for the last Winter Olympics, because they would show episodes late at night on NBC Sports Network. And then, like, because I'm just sitting up late at night, like, oh, yeah, well, there's my episode. And and this, it was crazy when I was sitting in there watching those streams of those guys. And and, and my friend mentioned I was there and I'm like, oh, it, the Earl Holland who won eight times on Sports Jeopardy. I'm like, I didn't think anybody actually watched other than like the few people that, that said they did and, you know, family. So. Yeah, you're sort of amazed by people who, who actually watched it because you didn't think really anybody watched it because if it was popular enough, it probably still would be going. Or if Sony knew what they were doing, it still would have been going. In fact, I was in Sports Illustrated. So sure, it wasn't as a writer, but it was about the whole Sports Jeopardy experience, which again, I have to send all those links later. But yeah, those are the most insane things. You just never expect stuff like that. It's like, you know, weird things happen. You never expect it. It's cool, right? This thing called life. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. I'm I'm pumped for the book. Yeah, I'm here for it. Now my biggest enemy will be procrastination. That's the biggest thing. I'll, I'll put it together. And like I was telling a friend of mine, because uh, she had talked about the thing. Oh, you should write a book about it a long time ago. And I was like, yeah, maybe. And then I just like sent her the outline a few weeks ago. Hopefully, you know, it's a start. Before we wrap this up, uh, Jenny, do you have any shout outs to anybody? Anything you'd like to promote as well? Um, I just want to tell Ben that I am happy to come on a Movies and Meals podcast. I know almost nothing about movies. <laughs> I'm happy to come on and shoot the shit. I'm good at that, clearly. But I'm accepting the invitation. I'll tweet about it later. Um, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to reconnect. I hope other people had as much fun as we did going down memory lane on this one. 
Oh yeah, I think eventually when I chop this all up, I'm going to eventually uh, the full episode, and then I'm just going to do a full fledged journalism episode with like bunch of Daily Times folks just uh, talking about journalism and their thoughts on it because that'll be a deep dive journalism one. I'm looking forward to that. It's like oh, yeah. that like era that we were there together. Like we're such fun people, and like I again super excited when you reached out and like very fondly look back at like the people and the folks and and the just like flag football games and like things we did i think we played beer pong on my deck once we had a good time, I, so. I wish we could have got you to play softball because that way especially a co-ed softball one because that was tough to get a whole team together because that's what we learned in the end it's like you never have enough women playing co-ed softball because we had so many forfeits because we didn't have enough women to play look when it comes to softball i'm a good warm body but i'm shit at it <laughs> Hey, warm bodies get enough. And like I said, sometimes you got to learn on the fly. That's how we did in journalism. That's how you do it in softball. It was a blast to reconnect with Jenny and find out the impact journalism and ice hockey had on her life. Next time, I will talk with the creators of the sports website Encore Fantasy Games, Willie Marks, Ben Stecker, and Michael Michaud. They'll discuss the inception of the website, what they offer, and their future plans. As always, all episodes of The Sports Refuge can be found wherever podcasts are heard, including Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, as well as on The Sports Refuge website. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of these apps and leave a mention, which we'll read on a future episode. Until next time. This is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.